The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a household of politics and became very comfortable in this arena. She believed deep in her heart that everyone deserved a chance, and as the early years of her life unfolded, she found herself fighting hard for fairness and equality, especially for women. In her mid-30s, she started her own company, and it was here she used her knowledge of political campaigning to bring awareness to issues near and dear to her heart. From organizing Take Our Daughter to Workday, to launching Make Mine a Million Dollar Business. Successful campaigns were repeated over and over. Today, she not only continues to motivate people to act with her public education campaigns, but also continues to help women find the confidence needed to step forward as powerful leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce you to one of the world's greatest women, Nell Merlino. Hi, Nell. Thank you for joining me today. Hi there. I love the title. World's Greatest <laughs> Women. I am honored to be part of that group. So thank you for having me. Well, you've earned it, my dear. So I'm so glad that you're here. And we have such a little time together. So I'm going to jump right on in. Okay. So over many years, you were around the national political landscape and learned how to get people's attention in the media. What is the number one thing you learned that could help others wanting to get attention on an important cause? I would say, I mean, one of the things I learned early on as an advanced woman in national politics was that if you put red in a scene, that it was more likely to end up in Newsweek because the red was very important on their page. So that's a sort of, I I think we all know, we're all taking photographs so much more now that you know what you need to make a photograph look great. But at the time, it was really helpful because I ended up getting all kinds of prizes because I would always make sure I had red in my pictures. And then they would end up in the newspaper and magazines. But that was back in the 1980s. Uh, In terms of what I've learned to get people's attention, you have to make people care. My success, I think, has been based on feeling myself and what I care about and knowing that I'm not much different from anybody else. So how do I communicate my care and concern for something and communicate that with people so that it becomes theirs? Because I remember getting a letter when we first created Take Our Daughters to Work Day with the Miss Foundation. And it was from a little girl who said something like, my mommy showed me this article and I'm so glad somebody did this because I thought this up two weeks ago because she wanted to go to work with her mother. But it was so true. It had to be something that was on someone's mind because so many people so easily did it. So it's calling out what we think and sometimes don't say. And finding out that other people are so happy that you said it because they wanted to do it too. Something like that. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on that because you brought a couple of thoughts to mind. Doing that, is that timing related to what is going on in the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so timing is important. In Absolutely. Timing and um, if you think about what the media needs and what you need to do on social media... It's how do you link what you care about to what is current and what is going on. That I think I am really good at. And it requires staying aware and informed about what's going on, not to, you know, a a crazy extent. But I look at a couple of newspapers every day online and 
study different social media, again, for not a long time, but enough to get a sense about what people are talking about to connect somehow. Yeah, yeah. Very wise in that approach. Yeah, I love that. So I'm going to go a little bit different direction, but kind of stay in the same topic. So you have been purpose-driven for most of your life and have been successful at pulling groups of people together to support you. So what is your secret to doing this? It's kind of connected to what you've already talked about. But go a little deeper on that, of how you pull them in. Because you've done a great job of pulling <laughs> millions I, I of people together. Partly because it's not about me. It's about ah. them. It's about them. It has always, for me, been about them, whoever it is. Whether it's you know women business owners or girls going to work or the work I've done, you know, in environmental justice or human rights, it is about the people who are listening and the people who need the groups. Because I think people care about a lot of things and don't know exactly what to do. And it's why people like me are able to emerge and say, well, let's do this, that will express this and make this happen. And if I'm really listening to what's going on, people are going to go and say, okay, let's do what she said. It is a real understanding of your audience and your message. Like, who are you trying to get to do something? It's not about me. It's about them. I think that's the, a key thing for people to think about. How do you show up? I mean, you have to show up in a way that people understand who you are so that you have credibility, but you are saying to people that I hear you And here's an answer or here's a path to something. So it's a combination then of actually being other-centered as opposed to being self-centered and then stepping forward as a leader in that space. Yes, yes. Because I say that understanding that the only way to get here is to appreciate yourself and listen to yourself, but it is in turn using that same skill to listen to others. Yeah, I can see that. Next question. Being bold has been an approach to life that has made it possible for you to impact so many. In fact, you told me, I'll quote you, why not do it? Yet it is so easy for many to talk themselves out of taking risks and being bold. What advice would you give to get past such fears? You know, that's such a good question. And I think you have to, I spend a lot of time imagining what would happen if we did it. I could see what would happen on the subway in New York if there was a Take Our Daughters to Work Day. I could see that the subway would have as many girls on it as men and women going to work. And what would that look like? What would that do for the men and women who were going to be employing these girls soon, you know, in the next three to five years? And what would it do for the girls to see themselves? This using your imagination, I subscribe to the notion that you start at the end. You start at what you would like to see happen, what you imagine happening and then work your way backwards from there. I'm sure in the current race for the vaccine, the end is the vaccine going into people's arms in the end of the pandemic. I would imagine that somebody on that team worked backwards from, okay, we worked to December 14th, which was when they gave out the first vaccine. What did we have to do between whatever it was, August or July or whenever, to get to there? It's seeing it, it's seeing it. and working backwards through the steps to understand what hurdles you have to remove. Because the sooner you understand the hurdles or what you think are the roadblocks, either what's stopping you or stopping people that you're trying to convince, as you remove those roadblocks, 
I believe you do it with a vision of what is to come if you can step through those challenges um, and step through the no's and understand that a no is usually excellent information. People who say no to you are telling you how to fix it, how to adjust it, or how to explain it better. Anybody who says no to me, I really try and listen and ask them more questions as opposed to saying, well, they're not on my side or they're not going to do it. It's like, gee, because if someone has put energy into giving you a response, even though it's a negative one, it means that they care as opposed to people who don't call you back or don't do this, you know, or, or even the people that think this is never going to go anywhere or whatever, rather than deflate you. It can serve to, and not for you to dig in and, you know, I'm going to do it my way or the highway. It's like, I want this to happen. I've just gotten this new information. What do I do with it to make what I had envisioned include that or, or deal with that? There are many different ways to pull things off, pull big things off. But what is important is the clarity and the holding of the vision and what you want to end up with, what you want to have at the end of the day whether it's a sale in business terms that you want to make sales or you want to launch a new product or you want people to change their behavior, what does that look like? What does it look like, smell like, sound like? more you can imbue yourself with that, the less frightening and sort of out of the ordinary it becomes because it becomes your, your reality in that you can see it. Your job is to challenge people so that they can see it or help people see it. And I want to love what you shared. It's absolutely brilliant wisdom. And I want to to caution all those listening and watching to not let that vision become who you are. Because what happens, what I've seen happen now is when people do that, and I've been guilty of it in the past, is that when somebody tells me no, I take it as a personal front to me. And it becomes a very personal, hurtful thing. But when the vision is something that is an entity that you see unfolding, but it doesn't define you, you're just the messenger or the vehicle of that vision. Now it's not. No, it's it's like you said, no, it's just, okay, I've got to figure out something different. I got to give them more information or I got to rework the messaging or whatever. But I see a lot of people get too attached in terms of- I had an experience like this a couple of years ago. I was absolutely convinced of something. I thought it was like a next step in a, in a, in a whole body of work that I was um, building. And the person I was doing it with at some point said, this is not going to work this way. I will not do it, she said. And it set me off in a way. And it has taken me three years to understand why and how she was right. Interesting. So to your point. As good as I am at this, I had a moment of thinking, of course, this is the logical next step for this. And this is how we're going to do it, blah, blah, blah. And this very wise, experienced businesswoman who had thought that was true at first, and as she understood it more for herself, said, no, this is not right. And I decided that she was wrong, as opposed to going, hmm, why is she saying that? But you had gotten it too close. Yep. You got it wrapped up. Too invested, too. Right. Got it. Who now was? Yep. Rather than say, gee, that's really interesting. What do you think would be better? I didn't say any of that. Right. So it's a very good thing that you bring up. I would not have told this story because it's still uncomfortable. I still haven't called her and told her that either. 
<laughs> she uh, might hear it on this. <laughs> I still have She'll say, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> you were right. Yes. the um, master of big ideas and yeah. you have tackled some very big projects that have evolved from big ideas. So yeah. my question to you now is what is the process for tackling such projects so that you don't get bogged down in the problems that arise? Cause there's always problems. Always. The yeah. most important thing when you're pulling off something big is not what am I going to do? Who am I going to call? Who is doing this? I am a great advocate, a great uh, speaker. I strategically am pretty good. Day-to-day details. When I worked with a large team, they all just knew never to give me a piece of paper whenever we use paper because it would be lost in five minutes. That is so not me. So my question always is, who's going to do that with me? Who's going to do that with us? Who's going to handle all these things? The key to success for women is to get to a place as quickly as possible where they are delegating responsibility and the full authority that is needed to act on the things that you are creating. It is particularly in big things. I mean, I am so struck by the young woman whose name I can't remember at the moment, who ran the Biden campaign from the attic of her house with three children, having never met anyone because of the pandemic did it all on Zoom and won because she had no choice. Somebody else has to do it. You can only do what you can do on Zoom. So who's doing how many hours in the day? How many? So it's thinking about what does it take? I mean, one of the things that we we worked a lot on in Make Money Million was what does it take? If you're at $100,000 in revenue, how many widgets or dolls or software packages do you need to sell to get to a million? And once you start to understand that, then how many vendors, employees, you know, whatever, or contractors are you going to need to make this stuff to get to a million? The reason a lot of us don't get there is because we keep thinking we're going to do it all. And you would be crazy to think that you could, which is why we don't, as opposed to thinking, I'm always thinking about it. Who do I call? Who knows about that? Who knows them? That's from my political background. I really think because you can't win an election by yourself. It's who do you have? What precinct captains support you? What, you know, what county leaders, whatever. And in in my world, it was what girls organizations supported the idea of Take Our Daughters to Work Day because some of them had more credibility with the press than I did in the beginning. And it was better that the YWCA spoke about this or the Girl Scouts or whatever. That's the advantage of also knowing that it's not about you because you're not looking to always be on camera. You're looking to get the best voice as just an example. So it's who, who are you showing up with? I mean, my motto is women, you can have it all as long as you do not do it all. If you are doing it all, you will get stuck. Yeah. Oh my stuck, goodness. tired, burned out and furious is what you'll get. And it's not a pretty sight, is it? No, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. So let's continue on this of of finding what you need outside of yourself. So through the years, you have raised millions from corporations to support your work. So what has been the key to getting others to give you the money needed to fund your big ideas? 
I make a very good case for the idea and very clear about what it means to them, what it could mean to them, what that vision, that vision of, you know, girls coming to work, what that does for their workplace, what that does for the relationship between the employers and their female employees, all the different iterations of benefit to the girls, the parents, the employer, the schools, where there's a real understanding that it's a great opportunity for everyone involved. That is what I think I communicate very clearly, is that I do my research. I mean, I know in dealing with Hillary Clinton's office when she was senator, explaining what it would mean if a million women business owners got to a million dollars in revenue, what that would mean for the U.S. economy. She had economists working on those numbers with me for weeks to make sure that our argument was credible so that she was comfortable coming to a press conference when we were announcing this and speaking about the potential in the numbers. But it's doing the groundwork, having your research and your numbers. I can talk numbers all day long in a press situation about whatever I'm talking about. I know the number of girls, the number of business owners, all those things. They can put the thing in context. The other thing that helps is, is a track record. And I will say what was most helpful to me early on was working with Gloria Steinem and the people around the Miss Foundation because they already had enormous credibility. I had some, but I did not have the kind of credibility, obviously, that Gloria had or Jesse Norman, who was on the board of the Miss Foundation. I mean, there were just extraordinary women there who, if you called and said you were working with them, people would call you back. And I also had that experience with politics. You'd call and say you're calling from the governor's office. They'd call you back. So it was that. And then my own reputation developed because the reputation also drives the interest of the corporation and the comfort level of the corporation that I've done this before because the thing that they want is for their customers to know that they're doing something that's helpful beyond just, not just, but beyond providing the service of the product that they do, that they're going above and beyond to bring more women into the workforce or to help more women business owners or whatever it is. And I have just been a masterful at getting press coverage. And again, because I think that just continues because more and more women are in the media and therefore want to report on what I'm talking about because of what, it's what concerns them too. So right. Which it's, circles it's, back it's, to what you said earlier, tying into what's at the top of mind. Yes. Right. I mean, what was clear in the beginning of Take Her Daughters to Work Day, talking to reporters, the moms who were the reporters were the ones initially who pushed the stories and then the dads started to do it as well because they knew things weren't fair in their own business for women. Men and women knew that. Mm-hmm. And they drove this massive level of media coverage because it was a positive response to what happened to Anita Hill. That's what I based Take Our Daughters to Work Day on was this public realization that these things go on at work that are not good for women, that nobody would want their daughter to have to experience. This was a response to it that was not punitive, but was in fact expansive. It was not going after somebody who did it. It was saying we shouldn't do this. And in fact, let's open the door to all of them. And then that's an emotional aspect that people can get behind without feeling yes. like they're, they're in some negative or controversial space. Yes, because it's not controversial. No, I mean, as much as no. some people, I mean... Who was it? Rush Limbaugh called us little feminazis for for years because we were freaking He called them little feminazis, Um, uh, which actually helped us. So, you know, but uh, no, very few people found it controversial. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So it's yeah. Yeah. 
I'm going to stay with this just for a second on this next sure. question. So obviously you're very good at getting extraordinary press coverage. And what I want you to share with those listening is how can other women get this press coverage? What, how do they need to approach those to secure the buy-in from the press? Did you find some particular little trick that you always start with or how would they get started if they want to find? Uh, this is back to the, who are you going to call question? Okay. I have worked with PR firms almost my entire career. I don't do much without one because the media landscape is so dynamic and changing so rapidly. You need someone who is paying attention to that because it's not a question of a Rolodex. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't keep a Rolodex, right? Of who's, you know, or a list or whatever of who's covering what these days. So you need somebody who's an expert at that and who is paying attention. The firm that I use now has all women who've been reporters. So they understand, and it's all female, they understand what all those women who are news anchors at local TV networks, you know, newspapers, all those things, they know all those people because they were one of them. So I would say it's who you hire. And I use uh, Pitch Public Relations out of Arizona. But so it's that and having a story that fascinates people. When we relaunched the Count Me In Revival in June, I had an extraordinary conversation with a reporter from Forbes who said to me, like five minutes into the interview, I am so glad to be talking to you because this was this is June of the pandemic. She says, honey, you're doing something, not just talking about something. I am always talking about action with research to back it up, you know, so that there's a reason for the action because they'll be able to give their viewers or their listeners something to do. It is not just, oh, this is terrible. Or, oh, this is not fair. It's like, here's a way we can make it more fair. And we just take our daughters to work. Or we look at all these micro businesses and figure out who wants to get to a million and let's help them. I want to get into that because I want to make a million dollars. And companies like American Express and Walmart want to help women get to a million dollars because they can become their vendors. They're better customers. It's, it's beautiful for everybody. Families make more money, everything. They can hire more people. I am still optimistic, I would say lately cautiously optimistic. I am optimistic about the human experience and human potential. I just am. And that's also what comes through. If you're selling problems, that's a different kind of reporting also. Because I think too many reporters get hit up with people trying to do sort of standard PR about a product or an announcement or whatever. What is it going to do for the people that are listening to the reporter? Does the reporter want to do what you're talking about or see it? It's that kind of stuff. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Such incredible wisdom. But you cannot do it. And you really have to vet PR firms and have a plan. But it's very hard to do that at a national level by yourself. I mean, the last time I was talking to reporters, and even then I had hired someone to help me, is I worked on Earth Day in 1990. We put more people in Central Park than had ever been there. And we did straight out pitching to reporters. But We developed a system, actually, where we discovered 300 unknown environmental organizations and started telling reporters about them to the point where we became a source for their stories. That's what we did. And they couldn't do enough of them. And we found groups like the Green Gorillas and all kinds of these incredible groups who were local groups in Queens and Brooklyn and we're all, all over the place who got recognition, got more members, and it drove more people to come to... Central Park and do all kinds of things, you know, recycling and all that stuff. But there was something to do. I think that's always, what are we going to do? 
I'm a big action person. I've already walked two miles and ridden a bike today. I mean, I'm, I'm busy. You're busy. (laughs) I'm busy. (laughs) I can't see you being idle. So now, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? You know, I would say, particularly now, when all of us, I think, have had hopefully a little more time for reflection because we're not moving around as much. We're stationary. We're home. I'd say that's probably less true for women with small children who they're teaching. But I think for a lot of us, we've had more time to be introspective and or to go inward. And I would say more than anything that you have to really hone in on how you feel about what you're doing. Hence why I lead a purpose-driven life, because I feel good about what I do. And I physically feel good. How do you feel about what you're doing? Is it the thing that you really want to be doing? And how do you physically and emotionally feel? Because I think so much, particularly, I, I see myself as part of a transitional generation of women. And I think many of us, myself included, thought that the way to succeed early on was to sort of mimic men. And you denied how you felt because you thought if you did, you would get further. If you acted like them and and they have feelings about different things. I'm not saying they don't feel, but I think they feel about different things like we do. I just pay attention to how you feel. We spend too much time denying how we feel or stuffing it. I mean, I smoked. I ate too much. I did all that stuff. I traveled too much. I did all those things. I certainly regret the smoking and I eat less now and I travel a lot less now, which I don't know what I'm going to do when that's over. But how do you feel is probably because I base everything on that now. I didn't always, but I certainly wanted to look like I felt good always. I mean, in terms of hair, makeup, all that kind of stuff. But I think we got stuck there, you know, where we could look good and not feel good. And I think we need to feel good and I know we'll look good. So it is an important place for us to sort of begin this reinvention that we are all going to be engaged in when this is over. I think obviously some of us who work in hospitals, even I think it's all changing. It's all changing. And how do we want to show up and how do we want to feel and how do we want to make other people feel? Yeah, I love it. I love it. And and you have such wisdom. I so appreciate you being so generous with all the things that you have learned and continue to explore and experience on this journey to greatness that you continue. And thank you for taking time. I know that you're not traveling as much, but as you said, you're a busy woman. So thank you for sharing that and being here yes. with me today now. Thank you. You know, I am, I'm, I'm watching the clock because Count Me in Revival, you know, the part of my organization we restarted in June, we have a big two hour problem solving session this afternoon. It's the last one of the year where for two hours, women can come on who have business problems and we talk about them and solve them right then and there. And it's been, we've had like up to so far, like 40 women doing it. And it's a beautiful thing. So anybody who's interested in that, that countmeinrevival.org is an interesting place to go. We'll be doing it more next year because this is what we talk about. That's why I was so happy to be on your show because this is what we talk about because we need each other. We certainly need each other. And I thank you for doing this. Thank you very much. And Nell is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, 
making things happen and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 